fellow book nerds. <laughs> Welcome to the Bookcase, book nerds. I am Kate Gibson. Does that mean that people who are listening are automatically considered book nerds? Oh, maybe, yeah. Maybe they're, oh, just, yeah. maybe they're just casual readers. I'm Charlie Gibson, by the way. I'm Kate's, <laughs> I'm Kate's uh, <laughs> partner in crime on this podcast. I, and believe me, I don't consider all of you who are listening to be nerds. That's not, that's not favor. It's a pejorative word, and it's not to you. No, not at all. I think book nerd is a positive thing, and I think, frankly, we should have jackets made, you know? Maybe our logo is like lasses with, you know, masking tape, up to putting it together. Maybe we're the maybe we're the book nerd pocket protectors. I don't know. But I, I think when it comes to books, nerd is a term we can embrace. Katie has a shirt that says bookmarks are for quitters, which I love. Anyway, to get to the program, because we do have a podcast. And, and this is one that really delights me. Rebecca Roberts has written a book called Untold Power about Edith Wilson. You know, everybody always asks, I wonder if we'll ever have a female president. And Edith Wilson essentially was president, unelected, Woodrow Wilson's wife, really assumed so much of the power of the presidency when he had a stroke in 1919. And she has written a very compelling history of Edith Wilson, a biography, in effect. I find it so compelling because, too, it is so foreign from the press and governmental scrutiny of today. I don't think there's any question that if a president was incapacitated, there would be any way to hide it from the American people at this point. Do you? No. And she did for more than a year, more than a year, hid it not only from the public, not (laughs) only from the press, not only from his cabinet and people on Capitol Hill. She hid it from him. He, He really didn't know how sick he was with that stroke. Totally incapacitated left side couldn't speak coherently, couldn't concentrate, focus on what was going on around him. And she said, well, I never made any critical decisions. That's questionable whether she did or not, but she denies it. But I did control access to the president. I made sure that he saw only things that he needed to see, and she kept much away from him. You're right. It could never happen today, but it did happen in 1919 and in 1920. It's an amazing story. Well told, has been told before, I think. Um, I've read a number of histories of this, but Rebecca really gives a new slant to it and had some access to materials that I gather people in the past hadn't seen, including a series of letters that Woodrow Wilson wrote to Edith and Edith wrote back to him, which are... um, Interesting. I think that, um, yeah, well, I'll let her tell you about the letters, but I think it's interesting that she says she never did anything political except for, you know, order what the president should pay attention to. When, of course, we know that in some ways getting the president to pay attention to what you want them to pay attention to, there is nothing more political than that. So it's a fascinating story in a great journalistic tradition. And not to leave the letters for a minute, but when you look at pictures of Woodrow Wilson, with the top hat <laughs> and standing straight as an arrow. And the pince nez, the pince nez. Right. He does not look like a good time guy. <laughs> and yet he's he's writing racy letters to Edith, who's writing back all she wants to write about or have him write about are affairs of state. That was what she was really interested in. None of this mushy talk, Woodrow. I want to hear about what's going on with Europe and, and the, <laughs> the aftermath of World War One. Anyway, it's a really interesting story. Rebecca tells it well. So if you actually put it in today's terms, Woodrow was sort of sexting her 
And she was kind of going, but what's going on in Mexico? I mean, it's a great courtship that way. <laughs> it, is. it is. Anyway, as I say, she tells it well in our conversation. She tells it well in the book, Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. Here's Rebecca Roberts. Rebecca Roberts, a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. This is a really, really interesting piece of history, Untold Power. Take me very quickly through Edith Wilson's life till she met Woodrow Wilson. No one was really paying much attention to Edith Wilson's life before she met Woodrow Wilson. And so the main source for those years is her own memoir, which is delightful, funny, catty, also at points like demonstrably untrue. So you have to take it with several (laughs) grains of salt. But her own story in her own words does paint a picture of a woman who kind of figured her out out her own way in situation after situation. Even if she didn't know what she was going to face, she trusted her own opinions and her own confidence. And that was the woman who ultimately became First Lady. So she was born in 1872 in Withville, Virginia, Reconstruction era Virginia. Withville's in the southwest corner of the state. Her family had been more prosperous than that. They had been tobacco planters and slavers in the James River Valley. When the Civil War made that lifestyle impossible, they moved to this funny little rabbit Warren of rooms over storefronts on Main Street in Whitfield. And in those little rooms were nine children. Edith was the sixth. The parents, two grandmothers, an aunt, a cousin, various hangers-on, random law students, other guests who would overstay their welcome. It was crowded in there. And Edith easily could have been lost in that shuffle. And she, her mother and her mother's mother were telling the girls, three of the nine were girls, that they should strive for these ideals of true womanhood, that they should be pious and submissive and pure and domestic. And meanwhile, the other grandmother, Grandmother Bowling, who was by all accounts totally terrifying, (laughs) singled Edith out, chose her as a favorite. And there's a picture of Grandmother Bowling. She was tiny, but she wore huge Civil War hoop-skirted dresses and a one of those morning brooches made of human hair. And she sat in a rocking chair with the tanned skin of her dead dog on the back of it. It was just incredibly (laughs) gothic. And she was there telling Edith, you're smart. Your opinions matter. You can trust your own confidence. And Edith was more bent towards that innately, but throughout her life, she kind of dressed up her confidence in these trappings of the true womanhood, purity, and submissiveness. She did get out of Withville as a teenager, moved to Washington, D.C. She had an older sister who lived here. She married a man named Norman Galt, who ran a very high-end jewelry store, so the Tiffany's of Washington, Galt's Jewelers. When he died, he left the store to her, and they had no children. So by 1908, she was someone quite unusual in America. She was an independent woman. She owned a store. She had money. She had complete control over her own money because she had no kids and she didn't need a chaperone. She was a widow and he was a widower and he didn't waste, there wasn't much grass that grew under his feet before he was courting Edith. So he was elected in 1912. His first wife, Ellen, died in 1914. And he was, by all accounts, brokenhearted. I don't want to dismiss his feelings on the death of his first wife. But he also was really, truly terrible at being alone. And his (laughs) daughters, who had been young single women when he came to the White House, two of them had gotten married and moved out. The third one was trying to be a singer and was sort of embarking on a musical career. So he was rattling around the White House by himself. And his doctor, Carrie Grayson, was worried about him. He was depressed. And Carrie Grayson was a friend of Edith's and engineered for Edith to become friends with the president's cousin, a woman named Helen Bones. 
And between the two of them, between Helen Bones and Carrie Grayson, they really sort of set up Edith and Woodrow in March of 1915. So really only a few months after Ellen's death. And there's this scene where Edith had gone for a long walk in Rock Creek Park with Helen Bones and Helen insisted they go back to the White House for tea, which they'd never done before. And Edith didn't want to go. Her boots were muddy. She looked a mess. She was worried about the sort of impression she was going to make. And Helen insisted, weirdly, she wasn't a particularly insistent person, but she said, you know, you'll, you won't see anyone. We'll go up the private elevator. It'll be fine. Don't worry about your boots. And of course, they go up the elevator, the doors open, and there's the president and Carrie Grayson. And he, Woodrow, it was really love at first sight. I mean, he was just a goner from the moment those elevator doors opened. She took a little while longer. It's obvious to me, reading this book, that Edith Wilson was ambitious. But you say she had to sort of subsume her ambition in women, you know, classic womanly qualities. Was she self-aware about her ambition? Was she honest with herself about her ambition? And was her husband aware of how ambitious she was when they got married? She was not self-aware, even the least littlest tiny bit. I mean, she (laughs) maintained to her dying day, and she lived to be 89. She outlived Wilson by 37 years, that she was not political, which is astounding. And she was able to say that with a straight face in her mind, because all of her political knowledge, all of her advice and insider status, she claimed was just in service to him. It wasn't for its own sake. That is pretty provably untrue, especially if you dig into their love letters, which, of course, I did. Um, So throughout 1915, they wrote each other a lot of letters, and the letters are fantastic. They really expose who these people are on this very personal level because, of course, they're not curated for an audience. And his letters are steamy, racy, intellectually superior, moralistic, Calvinistic, Woodrow Wilson wrote racy love letters. And so he's going on and on about, you know, his heart breathes for her and he wants to kiss her eyelids. And she's writing back saying, what are you going to do about Germany sinking the Lusitania? What's your letter going to be? What's going on with the Carranza government in Mexico? They seem to have a rebellion every day down there. And this is courtship, right? She's So the, the notion that she was not political is ironic, at least. And that's so uncharacteristic from the image I have of Wilson, which, I mean, he was something of a prig. So were the letters, were they PG? Were they R? Were they X? PG-13. There's a a middle there. There's a little bit of a middle there. Right. Yeah. They were the 1915 version of PG-13. I think you do need to (laughs) be open to interpretation. He, at one point, is moved to about a certain piece of furniture for there she gave me her, right? And so I don't think you get that sentimental about a piece of furniture unless some shenanigans happened there. (laughs) But it is all cloaked in appropriate language. She claims not to be political. She claims not to have that kind of mind to the point where she doesn't support the women's suffrage movement. Why didn't she support women having the vote? I mean, I really wish I knew why didn't this business owning, car driving, independent woman who blazed trails in a lot of ways think women should exercise their full rights as citizens? I think some of it was class. There was something a little not nice about those suffrage activists. And certainly once the National Women's Party started picketing the White House in 1917 and very directly criticizing Witcher Wilson, Edith hated that. But 
the truth is, had she wanted social cover for being a suffragist, she could have had it. There were plenty of fancy society ladies in the movement. I think it comes down to that cult of true womanhood lesson from her childhood that she was taught that the most appropriate sphere for women was the private sphere. And she was not alone in that. Plenty of anti-suffragists were women. And their argument was, we raise the families, we run the household, that's vitally important. And by wanting to be involved in the men's sphere, in the public sphere, we are denigrating the importance of what it is we do. You write, which is an interesting phrase, you said, because they married in the White House, he was already in the White House when they met, that she didn't have an on-ramp, I thought that was an interesting expression, to being first lady. But she learned it quick. She was a bundle of contradictions. And that no on-ramp to first lady is not nothing. It's a banana's job, right? It's got no job description. It's got no training. There's no ability to be fired. And so every woman really needs to figure it out for herself. And you can look to your predecessors for examples of what to do or not to do. But to some degree, we sort of expect the first lady to reflect American womanhood in some way. And that's a moving target. And it was certainly a moving target in the late 19-teens. So Edith just kind of had to figure it out overnight. And that was Edith all over. She figured stuff out everywhere she went. And the persona she chose was Mrs. Woodrow Wilson. She was just there for him, there to be the best, most dutiful wife she could possibly be. And that made her quite popular. Throughout 1916, she went on the campaign trail with him. There'd been some question of whether people would hold it against him that he moved on from Ellen so fast and that maybe Edith's presence would be unseemly in some way that did not pan out. People loved her. He becomes incapacitated. She starts to cover for him. And this quote really fascinates me. And it goes back to a little bit to the discussion that we were just having, where she says, I myself never made a single decision regarding the disposition of public affairs. The only decision that was mine was what was important and what was not. I feel like deciding what is important to the president and what isn't is probably one of the more important public affairs decisions that can be made. Well, that statement's preposterous. Right? <laughs> of course, she was dispensing with public affairs. What is it she was doing? She was the one deciding who saw the president, which was almost no one. If people had business before the president, they had to write it down, address it to her, she wrote back. She said she consulted with him about her answer, but she clearly didn't all the time. She was drafting public statements. She was meeting with the cabinet. She was making decisions. Now, was she making decisions any differently than he would have? I don't think so. She did know his priorities quite well. But one of the effects of him being kept in this echo chamber, because they never told him how sick he was. And every day they were telling him, you're on the mend, the people love you, everyone shares your dream of the League of Nations. He was kept from all bad news. So at some point, your judgment gets completely clouded by being entirely kept in this happy cocoon. And so even if she were mm. consulting his judgment on everything, and I do not think she was, his judgment wasn't great. He didn't know what was going on in the country. There's no evidence he knew about Mitchell Palmer's completely unconstitutional raids. He didn't really know what was going on with prohibition. He didn't understand that the nation was really tired of the wartime sacrifices he had asked of them and therefore the Democratic Party and that Warren Harding's promise of a return to normalcy is what they wanted. When Harding won in a landslide, Woodrow Wilson was gobsmacked. 
He didn't see that coming at all. And he was the only one in America who didn't see that coming. He has the stroke shortly after an exhausting cross-country trip trying to sell the League of Nations. And then his left side is totally immobilized. You say he his speech was slurred, his he couldn't concentrate. How did she come to the decision that she should put herself between him and everything that was going on? What process do you think she went through her mind to get to that point? The way she describes it in her memoir is that when he suffered this stroke in October of 1919, the doctors came to her and said, he has to be kept from all stress. He can't get out of bed. He can, his brain can't be taxed. He has to be kept quiet. So basically, if he, if he does the job of president, what is the job of president? Getting bad news and being stressed and having your brain taxed. If he does those things, he will die. But meanwhile, he can't quit because the only thing keeping him alive is this dream of the League of Nations. And so if he steps down, he will lose the only motivation for improvement. So if he acts as president, he dies. And if he steps down, he dies. And OPS, if he dies, there will never be world peace. So in her mind, the only thing she could do was do his job for him until he was better enough to do it himself. You could be forgiven for wondering where was the vice president, the actual person elected to step in when the president is incapacitated. My next question. <laughs> so the 25th Amendment didn't exist. It wasn't ratified till 1967. So there was not very clear language about did the vice president become president or acting president? And more to the point, it wasn't clear who made that call. So anyone who was likely to say the president was incapacitated, say his doctor or his chief of staff or his wife, was not willing to do that. The vice president was a guy named Thomas Marshall. He had been added to the ticket entirely for electoral votes. He wanted no part of the presidency, and he super wanted no part of being seen to usurp the presidency in an inappropriate way. So he was not exactly clamoring for the job. And they were keeping him in the dark, too. So, yeah, it was it was a decision they made on the spot and kept up for a shockingly long amount of time. You talk in the book about the fact that Ethos Wilson's family sort of never recovered from the Civil War. Racism shaped a good part of her worldview. Did the president have a firm racial point of view before he took office? And how much did Edith's opinions shape his racial policy in the White House? What an interesting question. So, you know, we are in the process of revising the legacy of Woodrow Wilson in a lot of ways, and his racism is one reason for that. The big things pointed to are his resegregation of the civil service and his screening of the movie Birth of a Nation in the White House. Both of those happened in the first couple of years of his presidency before he met Edith. So he <laughs> showed his colors, so to speak, on that issue before her influence was felt. He also, I, I don't see any evidence for a sense of humor at all from Woodrow Wilson, but to the degree that he <laughs> had one, he enjoyed a joke or two where the punchline was how, you know, ignorant Black people were. So he was... You know, I, I, in many ways, I don't think it's fair to impose contemporary standards on a historical figure, but within his own time, he went backwards mm. in terms of segregation. Edith was also not above a joke herself. And in her memoir, she talks about how happy her family's slaves were and how they didn't know what to do with their freedom and how undone they were by the Civil War. So she was also a bigot. I don't think she differed enough from his views or had influence mm. enough on his views to 
change his stance on race in any way. I think he had already pretty well cemented his place on that lane. Mm. Why did she keep him in the dark as to how sick he was? Because he was living sort of a fantasy, thinking maybe he could even be the candidate of the Democratic Party for a third term in 1920. Even later, after he'd been unceremoniously sort of kicked out of the White House with the overwhelming election of Harding, you say he thought he could have been the candidate in 1924. <laughs> it's delusional. The yes. delusion in of Woodrow Wilson is extraordinary. And she was so much responsible for that delusion. Why? Some of it was medical advice. At the time, stroke victims were thought to need happy thoughts and to be kept comfortable and kept from anything that might worry them. So I think that's where the initial bolstering of him and telling him he was getting better and telling him that the people loved him came from. The cracks between the three people keeping this secret did start to show in that realm of how much to let him in on the realities of the world. So in the spring of 1920, when there did start to be some members of the press and the public saying, you know what, if he's okay, let us see him. And if he's not okay, we need to know that. They did stage a friendly journalist to come do a pre-planned interview with him where they would approve all of the questions in advance. And Joe Tumulty, the chief of staff, wanted to use that interview to have Woodrow Wilson state unequivocally that he was not going to run for a third term. It was preposterous for him to even be considering running for a third term. He never would have survived the campaign. And even if he had, he never would have won. But he didn't know that. So Tumulty thought, you know, if he's public with saying he's stepping down, that lets another candidate come forward with plenty of time before the Democratic convention and Democrats don't need to basically forfeit the election of 1920. Edith wouldn't let that question be asked. She struck it from the journalist's list of questions because she didn't want him to think that he couldn't survive a campaign. Tumulty felt that that was doing him a terrible disservice. And in fact, his notes from that interview, he writes that Edith can go to hell. So they differed on at what point telling him everything was wonderful became actually destructive. But she kept it up. She never stopped until the day he died in 1924. Hmm. So when you research a book like this, how do you go about finding, you know, if this person's telling a slight untruth and this person's telling a slight untruth, how do you go about melding the stories together where you're like, yeah, okay, I think this is the definitive truth? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not sure definitive truth exists, but to the degree that you can weigh people's agendas and decide who's got a vested interest in shading this particular moment. So I'm not kidding that everyone wrote a memoir. Everyone wrote a memoir. And <laughs> um, they all present these events in different ways. You know, memoirs are invested in reputation management. That's what they're for. And so, for instance, Carrie Grayson and Joe Tumulty and Edith Wilson all say, the president was fine immediately. His mind was as sharp as ever. Once he was out of the woods from the initial stroke, he was absolutely the brilliant scholar he had always been. The White House usher said he was a shadow of his former self. You couldn't understand him. He would completely lose the thread of the conversation in the middle of it. So who's got an agenda here, right? Who has a vested interest in presenting these facts in a certain way? Where there's lots of sources, that's easier. Where you can kind of mosaic together 
a view of things from a lot of different witnesses. The harder part actually is the Edith's early life when she is the only witness. And you say in her memoir, she had sort of a a nodding acquaintance with the truth. What impression were you left with after you read her memoir? So I think I would enjoy her company very much. She was funny. She was smart. She put everybody at ease. She was charming and delightful. I I don't think that's the same as admiring her. I, you know, what she did in 1919 was undemocratic and not putting the interests of the nation at heart. And I'm a patriot and I don't think she should be lauded for putting the needs of the country second to the needs of her husband. So I do like her personally, but that is not the same as finding her heroic. And my final question is, did she love him? Did she really love him? She obviously didn't love her first husband. As you say, a third of a sentence in her memoir is about Galt, her first husband. And she wants in their courtship to talk about politics all the time with him, not responding to his mushy notes. And our image of Wilson is, as I say, sort of like a prig and not in my mind, very lovable. So do you think she honestly loved him or did she come to love the position that he gave her? I think she truly loved him. I think in her own sort of guarded way, she was never going to gush the way he did. But her letters do become more effusive. And she had a lot to lose. She had a lot to give up when she married him, when she would have married anyone, the independence that she had, but certainly marrying the president. And she, I think one of the reasons she dragged her feet on marrying him was she had to be ready. But once she was ready, she really was all in. And not only did she do everything to make his life easier while he was alive, she outlived him by 37 years and spent a huge amount of that time burnishing his legacy after he died. So I don't think duty can explain all of that. I do think that she truly loved him. The book is Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and complex, and complex, you underline the word, legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. Rebecca Roberts, thank you very much. All the best. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a treat. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.
rapid fire questions for Rebecca Roberts. If you could ask Edith Wilson a question, what would you ask her? How did you think you could pull this off? How did you have the nerve and the confidence to think that you could step in as acting president and hide it from everybody? Same question. If you could ask Woodrow Wilson himself one question, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Woodrow Wilson. I mean, I think I would really encourage that man to lighten up. But I think um, (laughs) I I would have to say, why didn't you come around to suffrage earlier? Was it purely electoral politics? Were you really just trying to play both sides of the street and keep the, you know, support of Southerners who were mad about the amendment? Or did you actually find women unworthy? Having read Scott Berg's wonderful biography of Wilson and now having read this and and actually reading some other things about the period. I am struck by the fact that you find him totally, Woodrow Wilson, totally humorless. And I, I, as I was, as I was reading Scott Berg's book, I thought, I wonder if he was ticklish. (laughs) His daughters loved him. I mean, he did have a softer side, but yeah, the prig, it's hard to love Woodrow Wilson. (laughs) Uh, One thing you wish someone had told you when you were started out writing that you didn't know. Women make history differently. I mean, I think I knew that. But one of the real lessons, I think, from Edith's story is that she spent so much time pretending she wasn't making history that in addition to just all the sourcing, you really need to kind of wholesale rethink the Hall of Fame model of the way we tell history, because that's just not the entire way that social change happens. And the reasons that Edith made history differently, have a lot to do with gender and a lot of, you know, other social norms. But I think that really needs to be sort of the place you start, not the place you end. The hardest part about writing a book like this? That she hid her own story. She was so good at reputation management. She spent so much time painting herself as this dutiful wife and painting Wilson as this heroic visionary that you really have to clear away a lot of smoke and mirrors. Favorite writer of history? Candace Millard, to my money, is the best narrative nonfiction writer. Her books read like novels. She makes esoteric things fascinating. Big fan. What's your favorite one of hers? River of Doubt is probably my favorite about Theodore Roosevelt after his presidency going on this completely ill-fated adventure. But her uh, Destiny of the Republic, her book about the Garfield assassination is also really terrific. If I weren't a writer, I would be? A jazz singer. (laughs) (laughs) you know like in a sequin dress leaning against a piano played by a very (laughs) handsome man sure revered book that you read that perhaps you're not quite sure why it's so revered i recently reread middlemarch i like my feminist heart wants to love middlemarch (laughs) there are a lot of other books from that era i love i just I really did give it another shot. And then, mm, nope. (laughs) Any advice your mom gave you when you were growing up that influenced you to get into writing? Mom was never a big one for stating her advice. She was much more lead by example. But I will say that her example was pretty powerful. (laughs) Mom not only, you know, accomplished incredibly impressive things, but she was so unfailingly kind and generous that I would say the, yeah, sure, you can write a biography on evenings and weekends while you hold a full-time job and parent three children. But don't forget, 
not to be selfish. It's a little annoying, isn't it? Having a really accomplished parents. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's amazing, but, but it's also a little a annoying. It's a, you're like, you're like, you know, I mean, every, you know, when my mom would try something and she would be like, I don't think I'm that good at this. I'd be like, do it, do it some more, do it some more so I can just see you. Yes, do that. Anyway, sorry. That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. And it was only by inference. <laughs> <laughs> Untold Power by Rebecca Boggs Roberts. And I didn't set it up very well in the rapid fire questions, but I mentioned uh, any advice that she might have gotten from her mom. Her mom was, of course, Cokie Roberts, who so unfortunately has passed away now. But I worked with Cokie for years and years and years. I am delighted that we that Rebecca has written such an interesting book so that we could have her on the podcast. And I've known her since she was knee high to a grasshopper. She's a great kid. I say kid. She's, she's, she's past 50 years old. So And working at the Library of Congress. So she has, you know, she, she's learned how to walk and she's, you know, all of that. Um, it's a really interesting book, especially, I think, for observers of politics. And especially, as you say, for me as a woman who, after some of the last elections, was pretty convinced that there never was going to be a women president in her lifetime to read this and, and realize that it wasn't in my lifetime, but frankly, we did have a woman president, arguably. Sort of. of. I mean, with an asterisk. But but she she was not elected to anything. What she was doing, as Rebecca points out, was unconstitutional. And yet she was of the opinion that she had to do it really to save her husband's life. That's arguable. But she felt that way and she assumed the power and she pulled the wool over so many people's eyes. Anyway, to move on. So what do we have for a bookstore this week? Well, we don't. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> All right. There is no bookstore this week. <laughs> We're glad you've been with us for this podcast. Interesting talking to Rebecca Roberts. She will have some final thoughts to take us off the air. In the meantime, let us remind you of the people who make this podcast possible. The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Randa Salinas-Baker is our senior producer and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Ninia McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. So I've recently been rereading all of Jane Austen, which I try to do every couple of years. And in Northanger Abbey, she has a character who says this about history. I read it, history a little as a duty, but it tells me nothing that does not either vex or weary me. The quarrels of popes and kings with wars or pestilence in every page, the men all so good for nothing and hardly any women at all. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.